Our text today, God's living word, Matthew 16, verses 13 through 18. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you Simon, son of Jonah? For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. This is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't so long ago that I actually uh, read that same passage um, that on the confession of Peter, Jesus would build his church. The confession of Peter was, well, like a rock. <laughs> it was the foundation of everything that came after it. I, uh, I wonder if you've seen in the news, usually in the summer, massive wildfires that firefighters are doing their best to put out. Uh, they do it on the ground, they do it in the air, and it just engulfs huge portions of a forest and sometimes can nearly destroy a forest. I remember in South Florida when I grew up, a, a state forest was close to us. It was called Jonathan Dickinson State Park. And one particularly dry summer, uh, someone dropped a cigarette or something, and it lit an inferno in that park. And for as far as the eye could see, the trees were gone, just burned to a crisp. Did you ever hear of a firefighter rushing through a forest? and saying, let's get some water on that rock. No. The rock might be scorched. As a matter of fact, maybe even some form of heat could put a crack in the rock. But no firefighter is worried about the rock whenever the forest is on fire. I, I'd like to think about that image in relationship to this passage, Jesus says, based on your confession, Peter, I'm going to build my church. That's the rock, the foundation I'm going to build my church on, and the gates of hell. To say nothing of a massive fire, the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. That is a magnificent statement, a hugely encouraging statement. 
And after Peter heard the statement, he saw history unfold. And he must have reflected back on any number of occasions to that statement of Jesus, on this rock I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He must have hearkened back to it when he, the one who denied Christ at the cross, stood up and preached on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 plus people came to faith in Christ who otherwise had not confessed him as Lord. He must have thought about the statement when he witnessed the miracles that came literally from his coat and from his word that he'd never witnessed before. He must have thought about the statement, on this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He must have thought of this statement whenever he watched the church literally explode on the scene of human history when he quite frankly, became small compared to the Apostle Paul, who was the great evangelist for the church across what is now even Europe. He must have thought, yes, it's on this rock that Christ is going to build his church and the gates of hell won't be able to prevail against it. I've just said something about Peter and his statement. Now, I want to tell you what's coming next. Uncharacteristically, I am leaving that text behind, except for the phrase, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I want to give you a fair warning. You and I are about to gallop for 2,000 years of church history. And we're going to see how the church has risen and fallen and the gates of hell, even in its highs and even in its lows, have not prevailed against it. The church exploded, as we said, on the scene of human history. Can I say this? When the church exploded on the scene of human history, the church didn't know what to do with itself. All it knew is that it should concentrate, not necessarily organizationally, but on some principles, the teachings of the apostles, prayer, fellowship, gathering together in community. It was those basic fundamentals. That was it. Where the church exploded on the scene of human history. That was it. Then when it began to explode on the scene of human history, you see in the writings of Paul, Paul basically saying, now what are we going to do? I've got churches all over the region. What are we going to do? And they established what are often called leadership models. There were bishops, there were elders, there were deacons. All those things were established in the early church. Why? For the purpose of organization. Did that organization grow the church? No. Did the organization that we think of as elders and deacons, did it stay with us? Yes. It's remarkable how that organizational model, even simple as it is, remains in our churches today. Early on, the apostles were telling the story, and it was oral to begin with, and then finally written. And and those who were Christ followers were studying the writings and the oral tradition of the apostles. And, And finally, really quite early on in the history of the church, 
people began to say, we need something that you would call an organizing, shall we say, creed. But they didn't call it that. Irenaeus, who was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of the Apostle John, Irenaeus apparently penned what is often called the rule of faith very early in the history of the church. I want to read you the rule of faith. This faith is in one God, the Father Almighty, who made heaven and earth and the seas and all that's in them. And in one Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was made flesh for our salvation, and in the Holy Spirit, who was made known through the prophets, the plan of salvation and the coming and the birth of the virgin and a passion and resurrection from the dead and the bodily ascension into heaven of the beloved Jesus Christ our Lord and his future appearing from heaven in glory of the Father to sum up all things and to raise anew all flesh of the whole human race. Isn't that fascinating? (laughs) What you will not notice in there are what we might call denominational distinctives. What you don't see in there are some what we might call extraneous doctrines outside of orthodoxy. What you see in that statement of faith, not as well formulated, I think, as some other statements of faith in the future, you see the core of the Christian faith. Early on, the church said we have to rally around a core of truth that identifies who we are. And by about 367 A.D., that's quite a long time from the apostles, the canon of Scripture that we now know was codified. And we rallied around that canon of Scripture. But you know what happened almost immediately in the history of the church? Christ's followers began to be persecuted. Peter and Paul and the other disciples were persecuted. Stephen was stoned to death. Others were beaten and put into jail. And before it was all over, during the time of Nero, Paul was beheaded. And Peter, according to tradition, was crucified upside down because he did not want to die in a manner that his Lord died in. Persecution was rampant. In the early church. I mentioned the time of Nero, but the most extensive persecution probably happened under the emperor Diocletian. When Diocletian was in charge of the Roman Empire, he did his best to subvert and to annihilate the Christian faith. Christians were burned at the stake. Christians were tortured bodily and mutilated. Christians were sent to the lions. Christians stood before gladiators and were killed. Christians died by the hundreds over and over again. And what happened? The church grew. Don't you think, my friends, that in the middle of that persecution, they must have said to themselves, I'm going to hang on because the gates of hell are not going to prevail against us. I'm going to hang on tight 
Because I know the revelation of Jesus Christ that was delivered to us through John the Apostle. That in the end, Christ is going to reign. And He's going to make all things new. And it makes no difference how difficult my circumstances are. I will stand with Jesus Christ. They had to have thought that. They stood on the rock. The confession that Jesus Christ was Lord. And they died for it. It must have seemed an eternity before the church of Jesus Christ ever saw a period of peace. But actually, according to history, it wasn't that long. By 313 A.D., an edict was delivered. An edict by the emperor of Rome named Constantine. And the edict said, no more persecution of religious members, whether Christian or otherwise. We're not going to do that. We're going to let people worship freely. I, I wonder if the church bells rang. I wonder if on Sunday morning they shouted for joy. I wonder if they read some of the Psalms that reminded them that God was with them. I wonder if they recalled the words of Jesus. I will never leave you or forsake you. I wonder if they recalled these words. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. I wonder. What I do know is this. That from about 313 on, the church experienced Well, what I'll just call a remarkable rallying point. During that era, the major doctrines of the Christian church were synthesized. We have remarkable Christian doctrines that today still define us. The Council of Nicaea. We have the Council of Constantinople. And multiple other ecumenical councils that describe what it was to be Christian. That Christ was actually God in the flesh. He was both fully God and fully man. That the Holy Spirit was not just active as some sort of presence in the church, ethereal reality, but the Holy Spirit was the third person of the Trinity. And that God the Father and God the Spirit and God the Son are all together to define this Holy Trinity that He is unbelievably active in the hearts of humanity. The church rallied around those themes. And in rallying around those themes, they frequently came up with things they called creeds. I want to show you one of those creeds. It's called the Nicene Creed. if, If you're not into creeds, just take a deep breath for a moment. Okay? And read with me the beauty of these words. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. We believe in a God who is absolutely, completely sovereign, who was before all time and will be beyond all time. And He's absolutely perfect and eternal. And did one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God, from true God begotten, not made, of the same substance 
as the Father. My friends, the church early on came to the conclusion that Jesus was not born into existence through the womb of the Virgin Mary. The humanity of Jesus Christ is in the person of Jesus Christ. But His existence is eternal. It was before He was born. It was after His ascension. It was before all times. His existence as God is eternal. Through Him all things were made. Thank John 1. Oh, how beautiful. And for us, it nearly takes my breath away. And for our salvation, He came down from heaven and became incarnate by the Holy Spirit. And the Virgin Mary was made human. And He was crucified. Crucified. Horrible death under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And on the third day, rose again. According to the Scriptures, he said, and the Scriptures said, death could not keep him. And he ascended into heaven. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again. He's coming back with glory to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom will never end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit. The Lord, the giver of life. The very reason that you believe the very power you have to walk according to the commandments of God. Believe in that Holy Spirit. The Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son and is with the Father and the Son, is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. By the way, don't don't get hung up on the word Catholic if you're a Protestant. There wasn't any such thing as a Protestant. Everybody who was a Christian was Catholic and apostolic. Catholic just means the universal church. I believe in the universal church of Jesus Christ. We affirm one baptism for the remission of sins and we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come which is eternal life. My goodness. I think there could be a whole sermon series on that statement. By the way, for those of you who are not big into creeds, I just want to tell you that the people who formulated that knew the Bible better than any of us. And it was drafted based on biblical truth. That's, that's a wonderful heritage that was shaped following the Edict of Milan. But you know what else followed the Edict of Milan? The church, intoxicated by political power. The church, absolutely one with the state, the church and the emperor being almost inseparable. And by the time we get to the Holy Roman Emperor, 
The Holy Roman Empire is the church. And the leaders of the church are going to battle, physical battle, war with other people, and killing people in the name of Jesus. There are all kinds of complexities to what I just said. And I'm not going to dissect all of them. But I will say this. It's a blight on our Christian history. Whatever Jesus Christ came to do, He did not come to have us go out in battle and kill other people who were not a part of our faith. Can you imagine... Jesus Christ picking up the sword and forcing someone to confess his name at the point of that sword. It happened routinely in our history. Uh, Can I just pause to say something? For those of us who are enamored by politics and politicians who seem to repeat phrases that are Christian. We rejoice. We get all excited. And I think Jesus would say, take a deep breath. The church is eternal. It's my church. It mixes with earthly power about as well as oil mixes with water. Be careful. By 313, the church had reason to rejoice. And it went along in a pretty good clip. And then about 1054... The church had a dramatic split between the East and the West. It's been called now the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church. Pretty much the only two designations back then. You know what the split was over? Well, a lot of things. Part of it was political. Part of it was language. The Roman church said we want the mass and everything about the church service to be in Latin. The church in the east said our people don't speak Latin. What's the point? We will have our services in Greek. The language of the people. Does that sound familiar? You've heard that before. You hear it again in the Reformation. It was split over politics. It was split over language. It was actually split over the date of Easter. Do you know that we celebrated Easter the first Sunday of April, which was actually April 1st? The Eastern Orthodox Church celebrated Easter on April the 8th. That was actually an issue, believe it or not. There was a division between what the clergy could do and could not do. In the Roman Catholic Church at the time, they stuck to the celibacy rule for clergy. And in the Greek Orthodox Church, no priest could be married. What about other things that divided the church? 
Here's one. Leavened bread or unleavened bread? We do our best to bring them together at ECC. Leavened bread is in the second service, unleavened bread in the first service. But the church was divided over that. And then probably the biggest thing was a leadership dispute. The Pope in Rome, at the time named Leo IX, and the Archbishop of Constantinople in the east, which is now Turkey, they didn't want to let go of their power. And so one excommunicated the other. And the other said, that's not a problem, I'll excommunicate you. And the split was official. You have the Church of the East and you have the Church of the West. And history continues to march on. And in that march of church history, again, it seems that the politics and really the secular power of the church begins to undermine the very principles on which the church was founded. And numerous people cried out for a reformation of the church. John Wycliffe, a, a scholar in England at Oxford University, was, is often called the morning star of the Reformation. He cried out about the abuses of the church and wanted the, the language of the Bible to be English in, in, in the people's language and a variety of things. Not so much later on, a man called John Huss, a native of Bohemia, began to challenge some of the really bad practices of the church and some of its doctrines. And you know what happened to John Huss? The church burned him at the stake. And then a man called Savonarola, who was actually an Italian priest, later went to Spain. He spoke about some excesses in the church and, and was really provocative in his preaching. And before it was all over, the tide of popular opinion turned against him and he and three friars were hanged in the city square and their bodies were burned. All because they spoke about Jesus Christ in a way that wasn't exactly according to the church's standards. We look back at the things that they said and we think, really? Do you kill people for that? Of course, by 1517, the church goes through a radical reformation. Martin Luther nails a thing called the 95 Theses to the church door. Not in an angry way. All it was was a paper it said, let's have a debate about these issues. It was a university, after all. Before it's all over, Martin Luther becomes an enemy of the church. And then we have our second huge split between what we now call Protestants and Catholics. So now we have Roman Catholic and Greek Orthodox and Protestant 
And then the Protestants did a wonderful thing. They introduced everybody and their brother to the church, and we can't even count all the denominations that call themselves Protestants. You know, as a matter of fact, that was a prediction of the Catholic Church. If you actually do this, you will have no control over all your various churches, and they will spread like wildfire all over the world, and they did. Oh, by the way, we're one of them. A bunch of fragmented Christians from almost every denomination among Protestants and Catholics and some Eastern Orthodox worship right here at the foot of the cross. I think it's kind of beautiful, quite frankly. But many would be threatened by it. What was, the, what was the baseline of the Reformation from which we get our birth as Protestants? It was things like the absolute authority of Scripture and no other authority as it relates to the rule of faith. It was about justification by grace through faith alone. It was about the priesthood of all believers. Those are three major themes of the Reformation. And it transformed the way people viewed church in Europe and spread dramatically to other parts of the world. You know what happened next? Oh, not really next. There were a lot of things, but the next that I'm going to talk about? What happened next is that the Enlightenment in Europe created really a firestorm of revisionist theology. The Enlightenment in Europe was just drunk on its own intellect. And before it was all over, the church was drunk on its own intellect. And they did their best to synthesize the secular enlightenment with the Christian faith. And sometimes, many scholars were just terrified that if they didn't adopt some principles of the enlightenment, that the church would disappear. It would become irrelevant. Chief among them was a man called Rudolf Boltman. Rudolf Boltman was an amazing New Testament scholar. Incredible influence, even to this day. But you know what Rudolf Boltman did? He said, in this Enlightenment age, we have understood now that there really are no such things as miracles. We now understand that we can't really resurrect the historical Jesus. We only have this thing called the kerygma, this sort of message of the Gospel. So forget history and when you look at those miracle stories in the Bible, demythologize them. Don't take them as real history. Just find the spiritual meaning in them. For those of you who know a lot about the history of the church and New Testament criticism, take a deep breath. I know I'm not getting into the details and you can criticize me later. But in broad brush strokes, that was it. On one particular occasion, uh, Rudolf Boltman came to Yale Divinity School and he had a, a debate with a professor named Paul Minear. Uh, Paul Minear was a, a wonderful Christian scholar. I had the uh, privilege of helping him 
edited a couple of his books during retirement. Paul Manier wrote his last book at the age of 100. How about that for a productive life? In the debate with Rudolf Boltmann, who he highly respected, Paul Manier, who is far more liberal than I am, said to Rudolf Boltmann, Mr. Boltmann, I think I now understand the difference between the two of us. You, Mr. Boltman, want to demythologize the Scripture. I actually think that the Scripture should demythologize us. Now, is that powerful or what? In a nutshell, Paul Minear said what I hold to be absolutely dear. That when I'm faced with difficulty in the Scripture, when it pushes me in the opposite direction of my culture, when it says, no, not this, but that, and I say, how? I don't try to demythologize the written text. I try to allow that text to demythologize me. I try to say, wait just a minute. Have I created a mythology concerning what humanity is? Have I created a mythology concerning my own righteousness? Have I created a mythology that somehow links me to an economic system that I think is wonderful and absolutely glorious? I need to allow that Scripture to demythologize me. As a matter of fact, the big controversy I'm talking about was a big dispute between what are called the modernists and the fundamentalists at the turn of the 20th century. Now, fundamentalism is a, a name that's follow, fallen into disrepute. Names change. We don't use it anymore. It's not a good description of who we are. On the other hand, if you will talk with me and we can actually have a conversation, I would tell you I believe in the fundamentals. What are those fundamentals? I believe in the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. I believe in miracles, even when they seem incomprehensible and ahistorical. I believe in the inspiration of the written text delivered to us by the church. I believe in the virgin birth. The real virgin birth. I believe in Christ's substitutionary atonement. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died in my place. And I believe that one of these days, that same Jesus who died and was raised from the dead is physically going to appear on this earth and make everything new. I believe those fundamentals of the faith. You know what? It's those fundamentals of the faith and others that have made the church thrive. Those who have discarded those fundamentals of the faith 
I've seen dramatic decline. If you were to look at our statement of faith, as sometimes it appears in our bulletin, you would see a description of those fundamentals in so many words. That's the history of the church, in short. A lot more left out. You know what, my friends, when, when Jesus was crucified and was still in the grave, and the disciples wondered what in the world just happened. A dead Messiah? Inconceivable. It seemed like the gates of hell had prevailed against the church. And then came Easter Sunday. The resurrection. And when those disciples, who were so thoroughly committed to Jesus Christ, proclaimed the message and experienced devastating persecution and an attempt to completely annihilate the church, that church of Jesus Christ rose again, just like Jesus rose from the dead. The blood of the martyrs became the seeds of the church. And when this church that we love was divided by controversy and intoxicated by power, even internally, the gates of hell couldn't prevail against it. And even when the church in our time is absolutely rocked to its core by moral failings, the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. You know why in the midst of all that? It went on doing what Jesus called it to do. It went on feeding the hungry and clothing the naked. It transformed society being at the front of social reformation. It reminded everybody who would listen that all human beings are absolutely separated from God by their sins. And when dedicated to themselves, it's self-destruction. And the only possible way to be restored and redeemed is through Jesus Christ. And that same church proclaimed Jesus Christ, the hope of the world, the hope of eternal salvation, that's why the gates of hell can't prevail against it. Never have. Never will. Kingdoms come, and they go. Powerful rulers come, and they go. Philosophies come, and they go. But the church of Jesus Christ remains. You know why? Because it's the body of Jesus Christ. 
And you cannot keep that body in the grave. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for the church. For the privilege of being part of it. For the opportunity to proclaim the message that never grows old, never loses its power. And for the opportunity with all the saints, past, present, and future, to stand on the foundation, which is Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray, Lord, that you will bless this church. You will give us the fortitude to be what you've called us to be. You will give us the humility to proclaim the good news without sounding like people who are wagging the finger. We pray, Lord Jesus Christ, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will make us the light of the world. In your name we pray. Amen.